0: You have your Bibles with me this morning. Would you please turn to 1 Peter 2 verses 1 through 12? If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find that on page 1014. I would encourage you as always to have your Bible open and ready to flip to a few different places with me as we go. Today marks our final week in our series on ecclesiology. The Doctrine of the Church, we've answered what is the church, what is baptism, what is church membership and church discipline, what is the Lord's Supper. Last week we discussed authority within the church, and today we're finishing our series by looking at what the scriptures teach is the purpose of the church. Lord willing, this will provide answers to questions you might have like, why does the church exist? For what purpose has God created the church? What should the local church do? What is the church's mission? What is our individual role as members of the local church in seeing this purpose fulfilled? Redeemer, as we close out this series and we think about the purpose of the local church, my encouragement to each one of you as individual members of this body is to gauge in your own mind and heart where we are as a local church. Gauge and judge the ways in which we are doing what God has created us to do and how well we are doing it. Gauge and judge also where we as a church aren't doing what God has created us to do. You and I both, every member included. Then I would encourage you to pray. And ask the Spirit of God to make it clear to you how you, Ephesians 4, as a saint in this body, can discern your gifts and use your gifts to build it up. Not to leave it where it is, but to work toward maturity, to fulfill our purpose together as God's church. With that, let's look at 1 Peter 2 1 through 12. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved of God, I urge you as sojourners and exiles To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Three main points for us this morning as we look at 1 Peter 2. First, the church was created to worship. The church was created to worship. And we worship in two ways. We worship through gathering, and we worship in going. Those are our three points this morning. The church created worship, we worship through gathering, we worship in going. First, we were created to worship. I'm getting this initially from Verse 5, which says you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We'll mine some gold out of those in just a second. But before we do, we should take a step back and ask, is this new? The church is the new covenant people of God, but is worshiping God a new thing the church is doing? The answer is no. No, mankind was created to worship God. In fact, all creation was created to the praise and glory Of our Creator who has created it out of nothing. Hear this from Psalm 97. I'll read it for us. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame. Who make their boast in worthless idols, worship Him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of His saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to His holy name. All of God's creation bows in worship to the only sovereign. If His holiness demands that he, the heavens that He's created declare the glory of God and the sky above, proclaim His handiwork, Psalm 19, how much more was the crown of creation, mankind, designed to worship He who created them in His very own image, Psalm 8. But what happened between God's creation of mankind and what Peter is writing here to the elect exiles and the dispersion the church, about them being God's people now. Aren't all of mankind God's people? And the answer again is no. And like last week, this takes us back to the beginning of everything. Genesis 1-3, through 3, first with God's creation of everything that is, and then at the pinnacle of his creation, he creates man in his own image. This is significant. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, question one, what is the chief end of man? Chief end means, what is, his, what is he created for? What should mankind endeavor to do? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In the Genesis 1 and 2 world, Adam and Eve, Adam, sorry, would have walked with his creator who made him and breathed life into him and loves him. Adam would have loved and glorified his creator in his obedience to his creator. The work of his hands done out of obedience to his creator would have been blessed by his creator. The relationship with his wife Eve would have flourished unhindered as they obeyed the commands of God together to be fruitful and to multiply, that more image bearers would fill the earth with God's glory. It would have been paradise as God would be their God, as he's dwelt with them, his people, and they would have worshiped him and him alone. But admittedly, this is all speculation. Because in Genesis 3, this is not what happened, was it? In fact, it was quite the opposite. Adam and Eve failed to worship God alone. Through the deception of the serpent himself, Eve disobeyed the clear commandment of God to not eat of the tree, And gave to Adam, who was with her, and failed to exercise his authority over creation as he was called to, and therefore he too fell into condemnation. Our federal head, Adam, under whom mankind as a whole has been wholly depraved by nature ever since. Unable to worship God as we were created to. Because, like I said, all of mankind by nature are children of wrath, not of God. Ephesians 2. Born under the curse of sin and death and unable to please God in and of ourselves as he commands us to do. Romans 8. Hold your place in First Peter. Flip back with me to Romans 1. Romans 1 verses 18 through 23. This is what it says. So they are without excuse. That is all of mankind. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. Wasn't this the lie of the devil in the garden that Eve would be wise like God? Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals. And creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We can read this as the core issue in the human heart. And we can read it back into the situation in the garden. What happened in the garden? Adam and Eve were created to worship God, but they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. This is called sin. And later in Romans 5, Paul makes it clear that sin and death has reigned on earth ever since the fall of man. But this doesn't mean that we are without hope. Because ever since the fall, God has been maintaining a remnant of worshipers. But even they have not been able to do it the way that God has created them to do it. From Noah, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Israel. We see God's intention was for Israel to be a holy nation and to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Listen to this, Exodus 19. This is after God calls Israel out of Egypt. He says this, There Israel encamped before the mountain. Verse three, while Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, thus you, will, you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel this, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is the same language Peter uses in 1 Peter about the church. But Peter is talking to the church, not Israel. So what happened to the nation of Israel here? Well, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, time and time again, what happened? They rejected God. They did not worship him as God. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And like their forefather, Adam, they worshiped and served creatures rather than the creator. If you're still with me, look at 1 Peter. Sorry, sorry, in Romans, Romans 3. Look over to Romans 3. If you haven't recognized this yet, I want to make it clear. God created all mankind to worship him, but all of mankind has failed to do so because of sin. He still demands our worship as our creator, our sovereign, but we can't worship him rightly. Our sin has separated us from him. Our worship is tainted, faulty, unholy, and therefore an abomination to him. Look at Romans 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. This is important here. Verse 23 All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Meaning God created us in his image to image his glory. But because we've sinned, we no longer image his glory properly. But even further than this, we are separated from God's glorious presence altogether because of our sin. So what's the remedy? We've all been separated from God, not God's people. How can we be restored to what God created us to be, his image bearers in the world, in relationship with him, his people? Verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You see, church, true worship of God begins when we repent of our sins and put our faith and trust in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he died and rose so that we could be forgiven and made new, reconciled to God. The Lord Jesus, the second Adam, is our redeemer. Romans three twenty four says he brought redemption, but redemption from what? Jesus redeems us from sin, death. And their consequences. By trusting Him, we are reconciled to the triune God whom we were once alienated from. By trusting in Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit, without which we cannot please God. The author of Hebrews says this in chapter 11, verse 6 And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Jesus himself speaking to the Samaritan woman. You know the story in John 4. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. We cannot worship God apart from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And we don't receive the Holy Spirit apart from faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Are you beginning to see it now? Christ builds his church. Men and women repenting of their sins and trusting in Christ for salvation. He saves them by his grace through faith and indwells them by the Holy Spirit, thus creating a new spiritual people who are able to worship God as we've been created to. Christ Jesus redeems and restores His church to do what God has expected of all mankind but they've been unable to do because of our sin, to worship Him as our triune God because He alone is worthy. He alone is. Deserves all praise, all honor, all glory, the only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who through Christ has subjected all things to himself, who is himself, the beginning and end of all that was and is and ever will be. Back to 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5. This God, our holy God, has reunited us with himself through our faith in Christ, the living stone. Look at verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones. Okay, take a step back. We, being united to Christ by faith, are living stones with him. Him being the cornerstone, as we see in verses six through eight. But with him as the cornerstone, we are being built up as living stones. This would mean that we too, like Christ, are chosen by God for himself. Confirmed in verse 9. And we too, church, are precious to our Father. Christ being chosen and precious. In Him, we too are chosen and precious to our God. We, in verse 5, are being built up as a spiritual house. We learn from 1 Corinthians 3 that we are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in us. Church, this means that gathered together, the church is identified as God's new temple. What happened to the temple in the Old Testament? What happened in there? Sorry, what happened in the temple in the Old Testament? Worship. Here we learn that he hasn't just created a people for himself for the sake of creating them. He's created us church with a purpose and that purpose is worship. He continues at the end of verse five, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So not only are we the temple of the living God. But Peter has now said that we are also to be ministers within that temple, a holy priesthood. That's corporate language. Christ is the great high priest of his church, and we together are a kingdom of priests, a holy priesthood. And what did the priesthood do? Worship. Worship in the temple of God by offering sacrifices to God and interceding on behalf of the people. And to be clear, I don't want to diminish the fact that every one of us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have direct access through our high priest to God. This is a glorious truth. Here, though, he speaks of our functioning as a priesthood. Not the function of an individual priest, but us as a priesthood. Together we are a holy priesthood. Church, and here Peter says we offer spiritual sacrifices. Notice two things. You can't offer spiritual sacrifices if you don't have the Spirit. And these sacrifices are only acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Let this dismantle any idea you might have that worshiping God is something that you can do by your own strength or your own power, whether at home or here. You can't. It is by the Spirit through Jesus Christ. This goes for all of us here this morning, including those of us who don't know Christ as our Savior. Maybe you are living your life thinking you're good with God. You're doing your best to do what's right. But I hope you've noticed, friend, you were created to worship God. And if I asked you today if you've ever sinned, ever, even if you've told a little tiny white lie, and if your answer is yes, like me, like everyone else in this room, that makes you a sinner. And sinners have fallen short of the glory of God. And cannot please God by themselves. And my hope in this, in saying this, is that you see your need for Christ yourself. Call out to Him. He hears the prayers of repentance and trust. Put your faith in Him and be made right with God. And then, by the power of the Spirit, through the Lord Jesus Christ, offer spiritual sacrifices to your God and Father. But what are these spiritual sacrifices? I would say that, broadly, the spiritual sacrifices of God's new covenant people, His church, His holy priesthood, manifests as we function as His priesthood before God and before the world. So you notice two avenues there. That is, in what we now do as a kingdom of priests, when we, the church gathers and when the church goes. Which brings us to the second point. Worshiping through gathering. The worship of God being the foundation for everything that we do, it is the foundation of why we gather. Again, true worship of God begins when we repent of our sins and put our faith and trust in Christ. And throughout this series, Lord willing, it's been clear what happens next. Matthew 28, the new disciple is baptized and is welcomed in. He gathers with a group of disciples who've covenanted together as a local church. They appoint for themselves elders to rule over them by teaching them God's word and shepherding them in the truth. And they all together worship God through obedience to God's word. The local church is Christ's church. And as Christ's church, we are his new covenant community. Look at verse 9. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we'd not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Church, the local church is called to worship God together as a holy priesthood. God has chosen us and has made us into his people. He's shown us great mercy through the Lord Jesus Christ, making us a holy nation through his holy son. Once we were not a people, but now we're a holy people for his own possession. And all of this for the purpose at the end of verse 9, that we might proclaim his excellencies in accomplishing our salvation. What else could we be doing when we proclaim the excellencies of God other than worshiping him for what he's done in us? And this is what he's done in each of us individually and all of us corporately together. And he has now commanded that we gather together in obedience to God's word, Hebrews 13, and worship him together as a holy priesthood. Back to verse 5. We offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Christ. But what is this? Okay, there's a few places We can go in the New Testament to find out. The first was verse 9. Offering a spiritual sacrifice includes proclaiming God's excellencies. But is that it? I don't think so. And I have these on the screen. Hebrews 13, 15 through 16 says this. Through Jesus, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Here we have praising God as a sacrifice, doing good and sharing what we have are also sacrifices pleasing to God. These would otherwise be displeasing apart from the spirit at work within us because these are spiritual sacrifices. What does doing good and sharing include though? This brings us to something Paul says in Colossians 3, verses 16 through 17. Let the word of Christ Dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. The element of doing is broadened here to whatever we do. Whatever we do, that includes words you speak or deeds you perform. All of these things are to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. So spiritual sacrifices can include proclaiming the excellencies of God, praising God, acknowledging God with our lips, doing good, sharing all things, dwelling on the word, teaching and admonishing each other, singing, being thankful. And a few verses later, Paul again says this in verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So if our question was that the church is called to offer spiritual sacrifices, so what are those spiritual sacrifices? From these verses, we see that the disciple of Christ serves Christ in whatever they do. Paul says, that means that We are to do all things to the glory of God. We're to do them all in worship of God. But that's not it. Going even a step further and answering that question, Paul says this in Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Our spiritual worship, our spiritual sacrifices, not only include whatever we do, but they also include our entire bodies. We give them up in worship to our God. Paul in Galatians 2 says this, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. All that we are and everything that we do is to be for the glory of God because of Christ in us and out of service to Him. And interestingly enough, getting back to 1 Peter, this is what Peter talks about in the first chapter. Before he mentions that we're a holy priesthood, look at 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Paul grounds all of this holiness in the gospel. This being holy and doing holiness. Christ has made you holy by his blood, so you ought to pursue holiness. Look at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again, not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. You see, the church has been given a new nature, once dead in Adam but now made alive in Christ and with this new nature, though we are still tempted towards sin and do sin, we can worship God in spirit and in truth. We are able to offer spiritual sacrifices, namely we can give up ourselves and everything we do in worship to our God. Surely, we are called to do this individually every single day in every avenue, dying to ourselves, taking up our crosses and living for King Jesus, thinking on things that are above, fighting sin, reading the word and praying, walking by the Spirit, doing good works, resting in Christ, loving Christ, loving others. But what does it look like to worship corporately, together? When all of us have gathered together, we are to, how are we to worship God in spirit and in truth while we're here? Not less than those things but does the scriptures tell us anything else? A variety of reformers, Puritans, theologians throughout church history condense or summarize these in different ways, but I've got six ways that we ought to worship when we gather together, six ways. First, this is obvious, practicing the ordinances together. When we practice the ordinances during our gatherings, doing what our church is called to do as a church, We have the opportunity to see the gospel on display as someone gets baptized. We can even taste the gospel as we participate in the Lord's Supper together. These acts of obedience, ways in which we worship God, proclaiming the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what we see in baptism. The dead being brought to life. That's what we remember and proclaim in the supper. Christ's sacrifice was for us and has reconciled us to our God and with one another, which is why we're gathered here together to worship in the first place. A second thing, the reading, preaching, and receiving of God's word. The reading, preaching, and receiving of God's word. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, "'Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, "'to exhortation, to teaching.'" In 2 Timothy 4, he tells them to preach the word and includes how there will be those congregations that gather for themselves, false teachers for themselves, to teach them what they want to hear. How much more should we desire to hear the truth, the word of God? This means that the word of God should be read in our gathering. It should be preached rightly in the gathering. And those gathered should receive the word by discerning it, digesting it, and if true, applying it to our lives. In these ways, we are worshiping God in spirit and in truth together because we are learning what is true about God from the scriptures. And this is welling up in us new ways in which we ought to repent and trust we can worship him rightly as we ought to. Third, exercising gifts for building one another up. We all play a role in making our gatherings a place of encouragement. A place of building one another up in love, to maturity, for the sake of godliness. And I would say things that are for the building up of the body should be done every time we gather. One encouragement to make sure this happens on Sundays is to get here early, before the service begins. So that you can love others, pray for others, care for the needs of others. Build one another up in love. And then during the service, that's why we have our fellowship time to do the exact same thing. Not the same person you talked to before, but find someone else you can pray for, love, and care for. Take advantage of that time in worship to God. Using the gifts of the Spirit has given you to spur one another to worship God in love and good works. A fourth one, corporate singing. We read Colossians 3 earlier, but Paul says a similar thing in Ephesians 5. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Church, when we sing, we are both making melody to the Lord and addressing one another. So when we sing, my encouragement to you is to sing with your brothers and sisters. Lock arms. Look around. My encouragement to you is is to sing a song even if you don't like it because you see your sister or your brother worshiping their Lord and Savior through song and my encouragement to you for their sake and for the Lord's sake is to sing the song for their encouragement and their building up. Number five, corporate prayer. Prayer saturates the New Testament. We are to be a people who are utterly dependent on God for life, for breath, for sustenance, for everything, even down to the very desire to even pray, we are dependent on God. Acts 2:42 gives us insight into what the early church did, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. You see the church Praying all throughout the book of Acts. Paul exhorting believers to give thanks in prayer. Romans 1. To make our requests known to God. Philippians 4. To help our brothers and sisters through prayer. 2 Corinthians 1. To pray at all times in the Spirit, making supplication for all the saints. Ephesians 6. To pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5. And one more. In, uh, in uh, 1 Timothy 2, Paul writes, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. We worship when we pray because it is glorifying to God when we rely on Him the way He designed us to. We worship when we pray because we're asking God to give us what we need and as our Heavenly Father, He delights in giving it to us as His children, giving us good gifts. So we ought to pray and pray fervently and expectantly. Pray believing that God will give us what we ask for because he wants to give us what we ask for when we ask according to his will. And six, encouragement to holy living. Encouragement to holy living. You can find an element of this in all previous five, but I wanted to make this clear because Peter makes it clear that this is what we're called to in 1 Peter 1 because this, in fact, is what we've been created to be. 1 Peter 2, 5, a holy priesthood. Verse 9, a holy nation. In 1 Peter 2.1, Peter calls us to put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Verse 11, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. How do we do this? 2 Timothy 2.21 seems to say we do this by consecrating ourselves. Hear me when I say this. Verse 21, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, He will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. We're called to pursue holiness. And this we do together, keeping watch over one another in the process. Galatians 6, 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. The purpose of all this is that we might be holy as Christ is holy. We've been made holy, justified, right? While at the same time, progressively becoming more holy, sanctified. Now, all this doesn't mean that our corporate gathering should be the only time we ever gather together. We do life together, which means we ought to gather regularly outside of the corporate gathering and worship should continue there, not in all the ways listed above, of course. For example, there's, there's no exercising of the ordinances outside the gathered church or the authoritative preaching of the word of God, though there, there is a degree of, of preaching the gospel to ourselves and to one another. But there should be, as above, an emphasis on building one another up, maybe even singing together and definitely praying together. We as a church should practice gathering together in smaller groups outside of our weekly corporate gathering some of the ways in which we can do that are one-to-one discipleship groups having dinners with other families calling a brother or sister asking if they want to meet weekly and going through a book of the bible praying with someone holding another person accountable for holy living obedience to christ the worship of god we do this together we also do this more formally in community groups if you haven't frequented a community group you know the ble- or sorry if you have frequented a community group you know the blessing that it is to study God's word together to pray for one another even sing together and I would encourage you if you haven't get involved in a community group this is not only for your spiritual good but the spiritual good of the rest of this body that you've been given gifts to build up as well you are just as important to us as we are to you we lack when you aren't there These are places we can care for one another's needs more directly, praying for one another, exhorting, encouraging, correcting, admonishing, all the things we're called to do with one another. Now, worshiping God is the foundation on which we gather as a church. At the same time, worshiping God fuels our gathering, right? It sustains our gathering. It's the very purpose of our gathering. But worshiping God doesn't start when you come in through that door and stop when you leave it. The worship of God compels us, his church, to go, to go. That's our last point, worshiping by going. Look back at 1 Peter 2, verses 11 through 12. Let's walk through this for just a second. <laughs> Excuse me. Verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles pause in hebrews 11 this same language is attributed to the people of god dating all the way back to our patriarch abraham this world is not our home we look forward to a new heavens and a new earth our hope is not here our hope is there with our lord but we still wage war with our flesh the world, and the devil, as we approach that day. Christians are susceptible to temptation like everyone else. But what does Peter tell us to do? Verse 11, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. I hope you can see it, church. Fighting sin is not an easy battle, is it? It is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can have victory over sin in the pursuit of holiness. So we should fight To put off what is evil and put on what is good. And notice when we do what happens. Verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Notice Peter assumes we are still among the Gentiles. You've probably heard it said before, the church is to be in the world but not of the world. Have You ever heard this? It's the idea. When we are, we are in the world, serving the Lord Christ, abstaining from evil as we live among non-Christians, but maybe you haven't heard it as one theologian puts it, and this is what he says. The church is for the world, but against the world. What does this mean? We get the holy living and abstaining from wickedness bit, right? Being in the world, but not of the world. But what about this? Being for the world, but against the world. This means that the church, as God's new covenant community, those called out of darkness into his marvelous light are for the world's good in two senses. One, in one sense, the church is for the world's good or good in the world. The Lord Jesus has restored us to do what he's created us to do, including fulfilling our cultural mandate by God. Genesis 1.28, to be fruitful and multiply. You can think of procreation. And to subdue the earth and have dominion. Here we can think of vocation, our jobs, what we do. In this way, these ways, we contribute to human flourishing and we protect, preserve, and even cultivate the world in which we live. Ways we can do these things as a church could include community service, whether it be for the good of our neighbor whom Christ has commanded us to love, or the good of our environment, of which, according to Genesis 1, we are responsible to maintain for our good. It could also include mercy ministry to the poor, the sick, the needy, Matthew 6 and Luke 6, not just praying for the needs, but actually providing for the needs when we can, James 2. Praying for the sick, the hurting, the broken, Matthew 25. By giving financial support to individuals or services that help those in need, Luke 12. The church has been and should be the forerunner in all these areas. We are for the world because our Lord, the creator, is for the world. In another sense, a second sense, in fact, the ultimate sense is that we are for the world is because we want the world to see the light of Christ Christ has shown into our hearts he's given us life and with that life Christ has given us his great commission in Matthew 28 to take that light to the world In Matthew 5, Jesus says, We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world that our light might shine before others so that they may see your good works, our good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Look at verse 12. Peter, That they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Do you know what this means? Connecting it back to the purpose of the church in verse 9. To proclaim The excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This means our purpose, the purpose of the church, isn't to just do good works for goodness sake. But to do good while proclaiming the message of why we do what we do. Because Christ has called us into his marvelous light. He died for us and rose that we might live through him and live righteously through him. His spirit lives in us and empowers us to do this kind of good in the world. And through doing this good, the world sees him. We worship in our going. And in our going, we are working for the world, to make disciples of all nations, more true worshipers who can worship God in spirit and in truth with us, us. This is our desire. This is our pursuit, our aim, in all of the good that we do in the community on mission for the world. The friends that we make in our communities, the relationships that we build is so that we can proclaim the excellencies of Christ so that others whom God has chosen come to faith in him and they too can worship God with us we church need to be in the world not secluding ourselves not cutting off non-christian relationships but in the world in their lives knowing loving caring for the non-christians we know though we ourselves are not of the world let me ask you this how many non-christian friends do you have right now is that good or bad we, church, should be for the world, doing practical, social, economic, environmental good for the world, that the world will see our good works, some of them, yes, reviling us in wickedness, but others seeing the beauty of Christ in us and coming to saving faith in him, while at the same time, we are against the world, hating its wickedness. Specifically in our context, in our country, ranging from the destruction Of the environment, yes, to the large spectrum of social injustices all the way from the murder of children in their mother's wombs to all forms of hate crimes committed in various ways, various places, whether it be in the street, in the shop, or on the screen. All of these good works done for the ultimate good of knowing Christ, our cornerstone. Verse 7 said, The honor is for those who believe. And we know, according to verse 12, the day of visitation is coming. That is, the day of salvation for those who turn to Christ by faith. What if those that you do good works for, and the day of salvation, you find them giving glory to God because of the work Christ did through you? One final thing to point out before we close our time together. Everything I've mentioned this morning, I'm thankful to say, we as a local church have in our blood. We've summarized these things in our core values as a church. This is what we as a church value most, gospel-centered worship, gospel-centered community, gospel-centered mission. And consolidating these down to their most basic form, we've made the purpose of Christ church our two-word mission statement, maturing and multiplying. But how do you think we're doing I hope that our core values or our mission statement aren't just words on a screen for you, largely unimportant and easily forgotten. These are the ways in which we as a local church say we will do what God has created us to do. We were created to worship, and worship drives us to do everything else that we've been commanded to do, which we can summarize in our gathering together and our going out into the world, which leads me to say this. If we aren't doing what we ought to be doing in our gathering, or we aren't doing, sorry, going into the world doing good works and evangelizing, those things are just presenting problems. The deeper issue is why we aren't doing them. And fundamentally, I would say to you, it's a worship problem. If worshiping God in spirit and in truth, leads to the variety of ways we worship while we gather and go. And we aren't doing those things. The problem is, we aren't worshiping God. Now don't hear me saying, we need to worship God more, church, as if it's some law we can work to achieve. Hear me pleading with you, church. Remember Christ. Remember Christ, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light the cornerstone of your salvation. Let us worship our glorious triune God. Let us praise His holy name. He's our joy. He's our strength. He's worthy of all of our praise forever and ever and ever for all of eternity. Let's let's rest in His love, His care for us. Have you rested in Christ's love for you? Rest in His joy in us as our Father and we His children. Worship God, RBC. And when your joy overflows, when you feel his security and presence safe in his hands, the gathering and the going will manifest out of the overflow of satisfaction in your soul for your Savior Jesus. Worship God. Worship God. Worship God. That's why we're here. Everything else flows. So as I encourage you before we begin, I'll finish by encouraging you again. Gauge and judge the ways we are and aren't doing what God has called us to do. And then pray. Pray, pray, pray. And ask the Spirit how you can contribute to make sure we are putting first things first. As we build one another up and work toward maturity to fulfill our purpose as God's local church here. To the praise of His glory. And for the glory of Christ. Let's pray.